Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Ray Dirksen, the lead pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit myselfland.com. We're in a series entitled Marriage and Sexuality, uh, part six today. If you've missed any of these, please go online to review them as we, there are certain aspects that affect each one of the messages, but I can't touch on, I can't repeat them all over and over and over. So you have to go back to get some of the, some of the other pieces that make it a whole. The, this topic is huge, marriage and sexuality. And so I encourage you, please go back and review them. It's a defining kind of series in that sense. I don't mean by that that it's the greatest series on marriage and sexuality, but it's defining in the sense that we're, we're hitting a lot of different areas that are important to this. Today we're going to be talking about premarital sex and consequences, so let's bow for prayer and ask the Holy Spirit to guide our hearts and our minds and our wills. Lord, uh, as we sang that song today, we'll praise his name forever. I was so overcome. Uh, there was such a longing in my heart for heaven and for you. And I was trying to picture throngs around the throne, singing. I can't even imagine what that would look like. That would make our church look like a cell group in heaven. What it must be like, even as it read in Psalms, that we get to see your likeness, that we're going to get to see your face. It says it over and over in Scripture. Psalms, and Paul says it. We long for that. But we also know that you have a purpose for, uh, for us here, now. And what we're doing here is a preparation for all of eternity. And everything we do or don't do here will count for eternity. So that places our personal lives in the context of sobriety, in the context of eternity. And so we say to you, Holy Spirit, in your wonderful, gracious, loving way that you have with us, reveal truth to us. Guide us in the right steps. Help us to take steps that will affect the advancement and the, of the kingdom here and your ultimate glory and impact our own personal lives for now and for eternity. Holy Spirit, move in our hearts in terms of our minds, our emotions, and our wills. Cause us not just to listen, but then to react and respond according to your will. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1 Corinthians chapter 18, uh, or 6 verse 18, it says, flee from sexual immorality. James Moore indicates that as many as 85% of all university students in the U.S. have had at least one experience of sexual intercourse by, the age, by age 21. And another report indicated that as many as half of all teenagers have had sex before graduating from high school, some as early as age 12. Other surveys uh, have concluded that religious convictions apparently have little impact today in the West on the sexual behavior and attitudes of youth who attend church. Well, the question that we have to ask is, is sex outside the boundaries of marriage, as we've been talking about in weeks previous, is it inconsequential? Does it matter? Or are there consequences? Well, first, let's take a look at why this behavior has changed, uh, why there's been this growth uh, in the number of singles who engage in premarital sex. 
there's a growing time gap between biological maturity and marriage. In the past 150 years, the average age of puberty dropped from nearly 17 to 12, but the average age for first marriage up, uh, went up, according to Statistics Canada. 1950, in 1950, the average age was 20 for women and 22 for men when they got married. And in 2000, 50 years later, it, was, it had gone up to age 26 for women and age 28 for men. So the old gap between uh, puberty and marriage was somewhere between three and five years, and now the gap is somewhere between 15 and 20 years. So young Christians are expected to remain sexually pure for longer than ever before while living in the most sexually charged culture ever before. The late U.S. Senator Daniel uh, Moynihan's solution was this, define deviancy down. In other words, he was saying, what used to be sin shouldn't be sin anymore. That was his way of, uh, of solving it. Then there's not only the growing gap, but there's the media impact. Young people are exposed to media influence, unmatched in all of history. And media, of course, glorifies uh, sex and self-fulfillment to the exclusions of uh, eth ethical morality. Lying at the foundation of media's message is the profit moda motive. Sex sells. And the more sex, the more it sells. And the more deviant the behavior, the more it sells. Then there's the dating game. We're looking at five reasons why uh, more and more singles in society are engaging in premarital sex. The present generations have easy access to the automobile, so they date without the benefit of adult guidance and, or oversight, as opposed to decades previous when the man would go into the woman's home and sit with the family and, and such. Number four, peer influence. Research reveals that a young person's decision about premarital sex is most influenced by whether their friends are engaged, their perception of whether their friends are engaged in such activities or not. And then fifth, uh, birth control. Those have all contributed to the rise. Now, is sex outside of marriage inconsequential? And we're going to see that there are actually consequences of engaging in sex out of marriage. I'm, I'm saying premarital sex in the, in the titles, but uh, I, I don't want you to think that adultery doesn't fit some of these uh, pieces as well. Many passages in the Bible prohi prohibit sex between unmarried people. Jesus said in Matthew 15, he said, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what listen to this, defile a person. There are consequences for sex outside of marriage. It says sexual immorality and adultery actually defile a person. Our culture charges that these prohibitions condemn enjoyment of the body. However, Proverbs and Song of Solomon, as we saw in a previous message, actually extol the joys of sex within marriage. But the Bible warns that sex outside marriage comes with consequences. In other words, it defiles a person. <clears throat> so danger number one, there is less chance that you will marry that person if you have sex with, uh, with them before you are married. Many believe that premarital sex uh, will strengthen the bond leading towards marriage. Yet when you engage in premarital sex, there is less incentive, not more incentive, for marriage than before particularly today, uh, because you're already having it. So why get yourself involved in, um, in some, some kind of legal thing that you have to get married? Similarly, many people that cohabitation before marriage will strengthen the chances for marriage. So today, more than half of all people live together before marrying, while in 1960, virtually none did. Yet much evidence reveals that those who cohabit are more likely not to marry at all. And those who do marry are at much greater risk to divorce. 50% of children born to cohabiting, cohabiting, uh, uh, a cohabiting couple see their parents' unions end by age 5, compared to only 15%, 1-5% of children 
born to a married couple. I received uh, an email, I've been receiving some emails and, and stuff from people uh, about the series, and one, uh, one in particular here, a, wo a woman, a godly single mom from our church, who's been in our church many years, godly woman, and uh, sent an email, and, uh, and she said, and I quote, and she gave me permission to use anything in the email, she said, I grew tired of waiting for God to provide me with a husband. So she had sex with a man whom she was hopeful would marry her. They had a child, but instead of marrying her, the man left her to raise the child herself. She said, working through all this in her heart has been the hardest thing she has ever done, never mind raising a child by herself. So danger number one, there's less chance. Danger number two, there's the sexually transmitted diseases often uh, the acronym STD is used for that, and, and these STDs can complicate the delicate process of marital bonding. And in addition to the physical problems, contracting such a disease through one's spouse brings psychological difficulties that strain the marriage. Blame and all kinds of things happen then. The long-term effects of such illnesses may include the devastating risk of sterility, threatening the likelihood of becoming parents. Antibiotics have stimulated bacterial STD strains that are now even more potent. So it doesn't just solve all the problems as, the, as some in the culture would uh, have you believe. There's a third danger, an unwanted pregnancy. Uh, the contraceptive pill has cut the chances, but it hasn't removed the possibility of pregnancy. No birth control device is fail-proof. And uh, Fran and I found that out in our marriage. And a pregnancy brings with it a painful decision. It could be one option that the world is offering is an immoral abortion, a devastating decision uh, for many, and has many serious emotional uh, consequences later on for the mother. Adoption is a second one, a deeply painful decision, and uh, not, uh, you know, never mind adding to the number of unwanted children in society today. We have 10,000 children under uh, Child and Family Services watch in Manitoba alone. Many of them, many, many are stuck in hotels in downtown Winnipeg. Alone. Can you imagine that? Rearing the child alone is another option, it's, but it's very, very challenging, as you heard in the, in the testimony. And then, of course, there's forced marriage, which also brings with it much challenge and pain. Then there's a fourth danger, uh, because people just, you know, uh, what, the, what the culture is saying, what the media is saying is, oh, just go and have fun. There's, there's, there's just no consequences. Not true. There's a fourth danger. Other bondings are brought into the marriage. Think about this. As we saw in a previous message, sexual intercourse creates bonding not only physically but also emotionally and psychologically. Previous sexual liaisons bring to the marriage additional bonds that pose psychological problems and thereby hinder the bonding process of the married couple. For example, and uh, I mean, marriage has enough of its own challenges without bringing additional baggage from other rela sexual relationships. True? For example, they can introduce into the process the ghosts of third parties who haunt the marriage relationship by being a constant reminder of a previously formed bond tucked away in the memory of one or both partners. And as the thoughts of one or the other spouse wander back to previous partners, the formation of a solid marital bond is complicated by factors such as guilt and regret and jealousy, or even the longing to relive the past with the other partner. That just tears a marriage apart. This problem is compounded if there were several lovers prior to the marriage instead of just one. Each new lover decreases the potential for intimacy and bonding in the present marriage. And by the way, some of these things that I'm telling you, we see this in our, in our ministry, in, in the office, as our pastors deal with this kind of stuff. This isn't just made-up stuff. 
Premarital experiences may also adversely affect the forming of the sexual bond in marriage. Uh, the sexual part now, even that is affected uh, because of what we're going to see next. This, all, uh, this is all complicated by the dictum, you always remember the first time and the first partner. Can you imagine that? Now your partner, your spouse, comes in with this strong memory of their first time, not with you, but with someone else, or vice versa. The first partner takes on long-lasting psychological significance. Danger number five. Comparison and competition in marriage. Each partner brings into the marriage all previous sexual experiences, as we've already alluded to, and this makes comparison between one's marriage partner and all previous lovers unavoidable. As previous uh, 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 partners uh, are now in the psyche of both spouses. For the non-virgin spouse, the one who had a relationship outside of marriage, or before marriage, this can take the form of disruptive memories. They're always there. Pornography does a similar thing. But a real lived-out experience is that much more vivid than even pornography. For the other spouse, the ghost of previous partners can form a, cont a continual threat to one's self-confidence. So this, uh, I can hear somebody objecting right now. Well, yeah, but <laughs> uh, my, uh, you know, my partner, my, my girlfriend or my boyfriend and I, we're, we're now engaged, so now it doesn't matter. Well, there's some very serious uh, risks there as well. A poor start before marriage creates difficulty in marriage. Premarital sex, even between an engaged couple, reduces the sex act from something that is in the context of a loving, caring, giving, relational context and setting, unhurried setting, a teaching sesh, uh, setting even if you like, a sharing uh, context, if you like, and it turns it into an, simply an act of sexual release. The problem with that is, this often results in one of two problems, a painful or unsatisfying experience for the woman. The man, on the other hand, runs the risk of developing exploitive, immature, and superficial sexual behavior rather than the sensitivity necessary to the future formation of a trusting sexual bond. So it develops a pattern of how sex will be engaged in after marriage. How you start is how you, the pattern you will set for how you will continue. And you won't break the pattern easily. This stunted development of maturity leads to marital problems later on. Guilt associated with this compounds the problem, making, making it seem like something almost dirty after marriage. Because the conscience is affected. Further, researchers have found a strong correlation between premarital in intercourse and subsequent adultery. The research indicates that. I mean, if you could go out of bounds before, it's more likely that you'll be able to go out of bounds after marriage as well. Sex affects us physically, emotionally, psychologically, and as we'll now see, spiritually. There's consequences in what you do when you step outside the boundaries of God's moral law that affect not only you but others like your children and grandchildren. You say, doesn't God forgive if we truly repent? Well, yes, and we talked about that last week, and if you didn't hear that, you need to go back and hear what we mean by that. What is repentance? But that doesn't mean that we won't reap consequences sooner or later. You say, it's, it's a good thing that my sins happened before I got married or before I had kids or at least uh, aren't known by my kids. I wish it was that straightforward. I really do as a human being. But it isn't. We all know that Adam and Eve's sin affected the entire human race. That's theological, and Paul talks about that in Roman stuff. We know that. Isn't that true? Uh, we inherited the sin nature. 
because of Adam and Eve. But it doesn't really hit home until we take a closer look at what it actually does. And we can actually see it in Adam and Eve's story. Their sin was the equivalent, think about this, what they did in the garden. On a human level, not on a divine level, and, and on a divine level it was just pure out rebellion. God says, this is what's going to happen. And they turn around and they say, we know better. But what they did doesn't seem that great. They stole a fruit. I mean, that's, uh, that's equivalent or akin to stealing one small cookie of a batch your mother left on the counter to cool when she ordered you not to touch it. And the result of Adam and Eve's petty theft. Now, we know it's actually rebellion. Sin is serious. But that's what they did. They didn't do something brutal to their kids. Was that one son had, was murdered and another became the murderer. Now, how can this be? Their sin wasn't that big, after all. The kids weren't around to see it, so it wasn't modeled. You know, Adam and Eve didn't show them how to become murderers. The sin wasn't done against the kids directly, like uh, child abuse. It's something the kids never ever saw. They weren't even alive to see it. And lastly, the murder happened long after they repented. Hence, they were wearing animal skins. Sacrifice for sins was made. So what's going on here? Well, we all understand how physical, genetic defects or dispositions can be passed down to succeeding generations. In a doctor's office, the first order of business is your family history. The same principle is at work in the spiritual realm. When you sin, secretly or openly, the devil can gain an entry point or foothold into your personal life. Ephesians 4 says, In your anger do not sin, do not let the sun go down while you're angry, and do not give a de the devil a, what's the word? Foothold. There are different kinds of entry points by which the devil gets a foothold in your life. Uh, the first is personal sin. And we see that in the case of King Saul. He was told uh, he, was, he was to destroy the um, uh, King Agag and the entire, uh, uh, and, and all their people, but he, he kept King Agag. Agag alive, and he didn't kill all the animals as he had been ordered. So Samuel went to him. God was displeased, and Samuel went to speak to King Saul about it. And he said, has the Lord his great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, um, as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to he and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of, what's the word? Witchcraft. And stubbornness is as iniquity and, what's the word? Are you serious? Disobedience is like witchcraft and idolatry. Witchcraft opens us uh, up to the demonic realm. That's the whole point of witchcraft. Its goal is to control circumstances and situations and people. And the more you rebel, the more you give legal right for and invite demonic powers to influence and control you. And stubbornness, he says, is as, what was the word? As what? As idolatry. It worships something other than God, and guess what's receiving the worship behind idols? Deuteronomy 32 says they made him jealous with their foreign gods, idolatry, and angered him with their detestable idols. They sacrificed to what? Demons, which are not God, gods they had not known. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians 10, backs that up and says that behind idols are demons. We can see how this actually happened in Saul's life. Rebellion opened Saul's soul to the influence of a controlling spirit, which caused him to behave in a different, uh, different way than when he was in his right mind. They actually affected him. It says the spirit of the Lord had departed Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Before he was made king, Saul was unassuming. He obeyed his father. He respected the things of God. And if you had told him or told someone that one day he would kill 85 innocent priests and their families, no one would have believed you. The sad truth is he did just that. 
And that evil spirit tormented him and influenced him to live a life of jealousy, anger, hatred, strife, murder, and deception. It legally influenced him by way of his unrepentant rebellion. And here's the key. Not only can the devil gain a foothold in your life through your personal sin and disobedience. We're talking about sexual immorality here. And pornea. We're talking about premarital sex or sex outside of marriage. He can also gain a foothold into your children and grandchildren through it. Something we call generational sin. That's what happened to Adam and Eve's family. Though they only took one fruit before they even had children, their family suffered terribly. Now, what I'm about to share with you uh, today, and I said last week that I probably would, I shared once before, six years ago, and of course, as many of you that are new here, you probably never have heard this before, I've, though I've alluded to it on occasion. Knowing we would marry, Fran and I had premarital sex. Neither of us had or has ever had sex with anyone else. And when planning on getting married, we reasoned that this would be okay. I'm not trying to be sensational here at all. There's nothing to be sensational. This is a testimony of warning. No one would have ever, uh, no one would ever know or find out. We were getting married. That was our rationale. At least that was my rationale. Rationale. And no one would get hurt. But many years later, on the weekend of September 17th to 19th. 2004, many, many years after we uh, had premarital sex, Fran and I attended a weekend retreat for pastors and their wives in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We had planned to add uh, a day for ourselves to the trip. So after the last session on Sunday morning, we drove east of New Orleans along the Gulf to Biloxi, where we had a room reserved in a hotel. We had planned to spend the next day on the white sandy beach reading. That'd be perfect. It was all perfect until we started having our devotions the next morning. During our devotions, the Holy Spirit revealed to Fran all the hurt the sins of premarital sex had caused our children. Now, you have to understand, we didn't go looking for this. He brought it up in our devotional time. He revealed that our sins, though hidden, had opened up the door to the demonic, allowing them to have access in, in, in to two of our children. Our secret sins had opened the door to something called generational sins and curses and passed down to the next generation. Suddenly, something St uh, Stefan had told us came to mind that since grade one, he had always been aware of a, of a demon accompanying him. Now, let me put that story in context. In 1978, uh, that's five years after we were married, I completely surrendered my life to Jesus and was so passionate to follow him that when he called me to leave my flying career for ministry, I did so. And when the Lord called me to move uh, to Woodstock to plant a church, I did, uh, I did so again without hesitation, without any financial support, no people, and no money. People thought I was nuts. I was. I loved Jesus, and I was willing and did forsake everything that he asked me to forsake. And I began to walk a life of faith. Here's the second part to the context. We loved our kids. And while I was planting a church in Woodstock, I did not neglect them. The children can tell you that. We loved them. We did so much with them that one day Chris came home from school, I'll never forget it, and he told us that no one in his class did half the stuff that they got to do with us. Uh, Fran even uh, uh, did ho homeschooling with him, and, and they became in, uh, insatiable readers, and, and they were good students. We had love. We had guidelines and discipline. We taught them about Jesus. We prayed with them. Many told us that they hadn't seen a much happier family anywhere. Now, I'm not suggesting that we were perfect parents. Far from it. I was in the, in, the, in the marriage, remember? Not by any standard. 
What I am saying, however, is that we weren't bad or neglectful parents. That's the point of telling you this. Yet, despite loving Jesus and parenting to at least a decent standard, when, uh, when they turned teenagers, two of them turned from Jesus and descended into a hellish lifestyle. The length of time from one entering that period and the last one finishing was 12 years. We experienced many sleepless nights, worry, anxiety, tears, fear, shame, hopelessness, not to mention the impact uh, on this once very happy family, what it did to everybody. Those were very long, difficult, and trying years, and always we were puzzled. How could you do so much right and still end up like this? That is, until we sat in that hotel room on the Gulf of Mexico in Biloxi, Louisiana, and the Holy Spirit pointed out to us that the secret sin of our youth had been steadily spreading its evil poisons within our children right under our noses. We sat in that hotel room stunned. We were horrified and in tears. We were incredibly repentant. Like Adam and Eve, our family came to know experientially the difference between good and evil. We never did get to that, uh, the beach that day. Right there in that hotel room, we confessed and repented of the impact this had, uh, this had had on our children. And we broke the generationals, and I'm not removing personal responsibility from that, but there's a disposition that comes with it. And we broke the generational sins and curses and took authority over the demonic spirits that had wreaked such havoc on our family. The next Sunday was my 50th birthday, and our family was over. We gathered our children and, uh, and, and their spouses. The grandchildren went downstairs, and we confessed our sin and asked for forgiveness. Uh, none of the children said a word during that time. You could have heard a pin drop as you may have guessed. Then we prayed, breaking bondages and taking authority over demonic spirits. Spirits. What I'm saying is, and young people hear me well, and every age hear me well, there are personal and generational consequences for all sins, physically, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, or a combination of them. And you don't know where it's going to hit. God doesn't want you to know this through experience. That's why he warns us. That's why he, uh, uh, that's why he tells us these things. Not because he's a killjoy. He's not a killjoy. He wants you to have joy and abundant life. He loves you that much. And so he warns you about the consequences of going outside the parameters of the way he designed things. Does that make sense? Amen. There's an eighth danger. It can affect your eternity. In 1 Corinthians 6 it says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then, <laughs> this was what uh, Zach was referring to last weekend. You remember when he gave his little testimony that I was, thought it was so good? He said, and such were some of you. I can find myself in this list just as Zach did. I'm in this list. And so are many of you, maybe all of you. I don't know. But you were washed. Is that good news? Amen. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. And that's the good news. God warns us because he says, if you continue down that pathway, it leads to separation from God and you will not enter the kingdom of, of heaven. That's where it ends. It ends away from God. The scripture says that's in hell. Well, he's gracious to us in pointing this out. Wouldn't you agree? Would you agree, church? Yes. Ah, he's gracious and loving. I love God. Well, lastly, 
Your body belongs to the Lord. Having just celebrated that the Corinthians had been for, for, forgiven for a litany of sins, and God has forgiven my wife and I, for, and I was, the, I was the chief architect of that, so don't look at my wife, look at me. Um, but he's forgiven us for that, though there were consequences. And our sin brings consequences, and it also brings, if we're believers, discipline, as we talked about last week. But uh, though they had been forgiven for this litany of sins, including sexual sins, Paul is alarmed to discover that they think that they are free to continue in these sexual sins. He can't believe it. Such were some of you. And now, look what he says in the very next verse. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated, exousia, remember that word, by anything. The, uh, the lettering in yellow, all things are lawful for me, which is repeated twice, that's actually a Corinthian slogan. That was what the culture was saying. Everything's permissible and lawful for me. And, and the, the uh, Christians were also parroting that. And Paul says, wait a minute, there are qualifiers for freedom in Christ. There are qualifiers, and the first qualifier is, and you see it up on, in, the, in the verse there, not all things are helpful or beneficial. Freedom is to be exercised in the context of love. The question isn't if something is all right for me to do. Love seeks the good of the community or the person in the present as well as their future in eternity. And not everything in that context is beneficial to those around me, and then we shouldn't be doing it. Second, second qualifier is, I will not be dominated or mastered by anything. That's another qualifier. Undisciplined freedom may become harmful to us by fostering addictive or enslaving behavior. That makes someone else outside of Christ as the, uh, as the unlawful Lord over one's body, and that's a problem. He said, I, I, God just saved you from that, and now you're being enslaved by it again. You're not free to be enslaved. <laughs> That's a paradox. It's bizarre. And here's the reason. 1 Corinthians 6.13 says, and this also is a Corinthian slogan. That's why you see it in yellow. Food is meant for the stomach. That's what the culture was saying. And that's what a lot of the Christians were saying. Food is meant for the stomach, the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. But Paul says the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. Uh, they applied this slogan to the body and sexual relations outside marriage. Their thinking went something like this. Listen to, uh, carefully. Since everything is permissible, which was the first slogan, and since food is for the stomach and stomach for the food, which will just be done away with in the end anyways, and because all bodily appetites are pretty much alike, wow, does this sound like present culture? Just, uh, sex is just an urge of the body, just like food is. Same thing. That means that sex is for the body and the body for sex, which God is going to discard in the end anyways. But Paul rebuts, their bodies won't be discarded, but resurrected. Your body isn't just a, uh, a container to be thrown away after you drank the liquid inside. So it does matter what you do with them. The bodies will be resurrected, and we will give account for the deeds done in the body. It does matter. And their bodies, number two, are for the Lord's use, not to be used for sexual immorality. In fact, Paul goes on to say in verses 15 to 17, Don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. He said, how can you be 
one with a, a prostitute, or in this case, and he's using that as a, as a generic term, for any illicit sexual partner, not just a prostitute. So premarital sex, sex outside of marriage, doesn't matter. We already saw that we are not to engage in behavior that can uh, dominate or master us because we have a different master, who is the Lord. Now Paul goes a step further and he said, if you have illicit sex with someone, you are joined to that person, and when you are, you are submitting to that person and their mastery. The word for dominate, exousia, remember that we saw in verse 12, is also found in the very next chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 4. It says, for the wife does not have authority or right to determine mastery, exousia, over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority, right to determine mastery, you know, uh, power over to mastery over his own body, but the wife does. In an illicit sexual liaison with someone, you are in effect submitting to and giving mastery of your body to them. One persuades the other. For example, Proverbs is full of that. It says, uh, here's just one example. The lips of a forbidden woman, it could be a man, drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. So now you're submitting to and listening to what that person is saying you should do with your body instead of the Lord. But your body doesn't belong to you or someone else to be used as you like, as our world is telling us and our culture is telling us. Christians, listen. Your body belongs to the Lord, and He alone decides how your body is to be used. In fact, Paul reasserts God's ownership of our bodies using two pictures. In, in, in the next few verses, 19 and 20, he says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God? A temple. He resides in you. When you reside in your house, who owns the house? That's the point he's making. He resides in you, so he owns the temple. And number two, he says, you are not your own. You were bought with a? So glorify God in your body. Bought with a price. Images their new position as slaves of God. We were bought with a price not to do what we want, the world's idea of freedom, but to do what God wants us to do. We are now slaves of him. 1 Corinthians 8, 6 says, There's one God, the Father from whom are all things, and for whom we exist. In having illicit sexual relations, a person removes his body from union with Christ. Listen to me. Removes from his union with Christ and goes to a union with prostitute. Paul's argument is you can't unite the two. That's a dangerous thing. And uh, God's purpose for our body is to worship and serve him in obedient love. And when we are involved in sexual immorality, we add to the collective sin and misery of the world. Isn't that true? God put us here. He has a purpose for our bodies, deeds of the body, not to condemn the world, but to save the world. And he says, instead... You are separating yourself from me and you're uniting here and you're adding to the same misery and collective sin of the world. And then, when we are involved in sexual immorality, we are not being light in a dark world to point people in the right direction through our words and deeds. You are the light of the world. We're not supposed to hide our bushel, our, our lights under, un, under a cover. We're supposed to let the world see how we behave. How God has changed us. How we were. You were like this, but now you're like this. And then he said, what he's saying is, we're not involved in sexual, uh, when we are involved in sexual immorality, we do not carry God's presence into a world that needs de deliverance. Think about the ark of the Old Testament. I wanted to, I wanted to tell, tell another one, but for the sake of time, I'll, I'll just skip that. Think about the ark in the Old Testament. It's a picture of what he's getting at here. Whenever they went into battle, 
God's presence was in the tabernacle or the temple, yes. But specifically, he, his presence was in the Holy of Holies in the ark or on the ark. And whenever they went into battle and they had to fight the enemy, they took the presence of God with them. And that's how they defeated the enemies. God says, there's a spiritual war going on out there, and you're not going to be able to take my presence into battle and change your marriages, change your homes, change, change your businesses, and the situation in your businesses, and in your jobs, and in your ministries, church ministries, and in your churches, and in your neighborhoods, in your society, in the positions of influence that you have. You're not going to be able to change it without taking my presence with you. That was the problem that the disciples had. Matthew 17. I wasn't going to tell you, now I am. Matthew 17. <clears throat> they couldn't cast the demon out. And Jesus said, it, it, uh, you know, if you just had faith like a mustard seed. What was he talking about? I mean, they stepped out by faith and tried to heal the, 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 uh, or, the, or exercise the demon from the boy. They had exercised many demons in the past, so they weren't afraid of trying it. What he was saying was, it was a defective faith, and we see that Mark shed some light on that. Because when they couldn't do it, they were as puzzled as Jesus was upset with them. They were puzzled. And so they came to him after he did it, and they said, why couldn't we do it? We've always been doing this. And he said, this kind comes only through prayer, and then some say, and fasting. But the point is, what happens in prayer? When we draw near to God, he draws near to us. We come into his presence, and his presence goes with us, and we are refilled with his spirit, and then we go out into the world. And we only affect things to the extent that his presence as the ark in the Old Testament goes out with us. And he uses our bodies to do it. And he, so he's saying, don't use your bodies to create more trouble in the world. I want you to use, your bodies don't belong there. Your bodies belong to me. Don't be mastered by that. Be mastered by me, and I will go with you in my presence into the world, and I will make a difference. You won't even be able to figure it out how you're making a difference. You'll make this decision, you'll do this, you'll do that, and things are happening around you, and people are saying, this is amazing, what's going on? And what it is, is it's God's presence in the ark within your heart. You're, you are a temple. Your body is special. And in the end, it will be resurrected. And the deeds done in the body will be held accountable for, whether for good or for bad. So you see, it does matter what you do with your body. Sex outside of the, uh, out of the marriage bond does matter, and it affects us in a negative way. Now, this is what I want to say uh, to close, close up. We have founded a ministry together as a church back in 2011. It's, five, it's coming up to five years since we officially launched. It's coming up to four years since we got our first two pastors. Now it's grown to 134 pastors. And it's all wonderful. There's lots of really neat things happening. Churches are changing. People are changing, etc., etc. But this is what I want to say. We will renew nothing. We will not see renewal, all-out renewal and revival in our church, this region, across this country, and other parts of the world until we deal with sexual sin. We won't. His presence won't go with us. If we give our bodies 
to be used for sexual immorality, whether, you know, whether it's pornography, whether it's sex outside of marriage, like premarital sex, whether it's adultery, whether it's same-sex uh, uh, behavior, or whatever it is, watching, uh, watching things like certain movies and films and stuff, the stuff we, uh, that people watch in their homes on television and in cinemas today, it's, it's, it's shocking. We will not carry the presence of God into this needy world that way. Second and last, we lose our moral authority when we do. We have nothing to say to this culture about same-sex marriage and about same-sex behavior if we are living outside the boundaries of what God says sex was intended to be in our marriages. Premarital sex and all of those things, if, we're, if we are doing those things and condoning those things that I've just mentioned, we have no right, we have no moral authority to say to the culture, you need to change. Jesus, the scriptures say, judgment must begin at the house of God. And so he says to us, as Southland Church, and he says to us as, the church in this re as a church in this region, but to the entire church in this region as well, he says to the Manitoba Church and the Canadian Church, repent. Stop messing with sexual sin. Don't be united to elicit sexual partners anymore, but carry my presence into the world. And we can do that through repentance, turning from our sin, receiving forgiveness, and then living in purity. Amen, church? Amen. I pray every day that God will, I do, that God will make us a pure church. That's what I want for her, because that's what Jesus wants for her. Lord, it's a sobering message, but it's not just sobering. It's sobering in that we need to deal with our stuff. Now we understand why. Forgive us for our sin. Forgive us for condoning sexual sin by participating in it it or turning a blind eye to it. We repent of it and we choose to follow you. Not in an arrogant, condemning way towards the culture, but in a way that brings your presence, ushers your presence into the culture and transforms it. And by modeling the way out of this uh, present darkness into a delightful future. Help us towards that end. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.